Good morning, First Baptist New Orleans. My name is Corey Barnes. Our pastor, uh, Chad Gilbert, is out this morning. I'd ask you to be in prayer for him. He and his wife, Cole, are just enjoying a time of rest. And uh, I will just tell you guys, Chad is coming off a busy season. Let me tell you one of my just favorite things that I saw during the Southern Baptist Convention when it was hosted. Probably my most favorite thing was just to see our church, First Baptist New Orleans, close to capacity. And one of the things that I want us to just be praying of towards that is that we see that on a regular basis. That was a joyful sight. Another thing that I saw was our pastor, along with many members of our church, but, but our pastor running around the floor of the Southern Baptist Convention wearing a, a yellow like safety vest with a, a mic on his ear. And what he was doing was he was coordinating lots of different things that were happening for the pastor's conference and then later for the ushers at the Southern Baptist Convention. And just to let you know, Chad's one of those guys that if he wanted to, he's the pastor of First Baptist New Orleans. He's a great preacher. He's well-respected. He could have been one of the guys that was in there with a, a coat and a tie or $250 tennis shoes, whichever your style is. And he could have been walking around and just kind of strutting up and down, just, just kind of being somebody with the, the denomination here in his hometown, but instead he put on a yellow vest and a microphone. And that was a blessing for me to see. It's one of the many reasons he's a blessing to our church. And we wanna be praying for he and Cole that they get some rest because Chad and Cole are resting to give them fuel for continued service. I wanna tell you just briefly, if you're a visitor here this morning, as Gary said earlier, we are so thankful that you're here. Anytime I'm preaching, I wanna encourage all the visitors, give us a second chance after this morning, right? Chad will be back. And so if you came this morning, uh, you know, things will, things will get better. So, uh, so give us a second chance and come back and visit. Visit. Also just wanted to let you all know, as I said, my name is Corey Barnes. Until recently, I served as the discipleship pastor uh, here at First Baptist New Orleans. Many of you got an email about a week and a half ago. Um, I have stepped down from that position as pastor. I just wanted to briefly tell you why that was before we go into a time in the word this morning. Uh, Chad was so gracious and kind to reach out to me when we found out we were both going to be back in New Orleans. Uh, we had served together in the past and uh, asked me if I would come and, and serve alongside him here. Chad was gracious to make that invitation. Jamie Dew and Larry Lyon and Norris Grubbs and Bo Rice and those that were in leadership at the seminary were gracious and excited to allow me to do that along with the role that I was playing at the seminary. It's been a joyous two years doing that. Uh, Kayla and I talk often about how one of just the, the biggest surprises to us is how much we have loved and continue to love our church family at First Baptist New Orleans. And I've loved serving as a pastor. We are excited to continue to be church members here. We wanna be the best church members we can be. Just to be honest, our kids would kill us if we tried to move anywhere else in the city anyway. So we are not going anywhere. But I just wanna tell you that, that as uh, I've been asked to just serve in some new roles and take on some new roles of service at the seminary. And as Kayla and I talked, we kind of knew we were on the edge of the responsibilities that we could handle and do well and faithfully during this time. And, uh, and so that's the reason that we're doing that. One of the big things that's happened in between when I started serving here as a pastor and now is Pastor Gary Meyer stepping into his position. And sisters and brothers, I just wanna tell you, Pastor Gary, 
just fills the role of leading us in discipleship so well that as those two things came together, taking in that new role, praying through God's will for us in this time, and then watching Pastor Gary lead and knowing that there's just an ability to step down. That's why that happened. Chad and Gary and our other pastors have been gracious to allow me to self-assess a lot of that. And so I came to them and, and just asked if it would be acceptable for me to step down. Thank you as a church for allowing me to serve as one of your pastors. I am so glad now to step alongside of many brothers in this church that are uh, gifted by God's grace to teach the word. And as you need me to do so, I will do that um, in whatever capacity you need. And with that in mind, this morning, Colossians chapter three, please turn there with me. Colossians chapter three, we're gonna begin in verse one. We're gonna read through verse 11. We're gonna focus on verses five through 11 but we need to see verses one through four to understand what this passage is doing. So as we prepare to read it, I wanna challenge us to see that this is going to be telling us how we might live the resurrected life. And in particular, how we might live the resurrected life in a world that is sinful and broken. What does it look like to live as Jesus's people in this place that's so foundationally broken for sin? Not just sin out there, but the sin that we as Christ followers carry within us as sinful and broken people. So I would ask you, if you would, please stand with me this morning as we read these 11 verses. We're gonna pause just briefly after verse four to kind of set us up for, for seeing the rest of the passage. These are God's words to us. So, if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So church, just briefly in those four verses, see what Paul is doing as we're standing and looking at the word together. If you have been raised with Christ, see that in verse one. If you have been raised with Christ, then verse two, set your mind on the things that are above, not only earthly things, for you have died, so you are going to Put to death, in verse 5, put to death, therefore, what belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, God's wrath is coming upon the disobedient. And you once walked in these things when you were living in them, but now put away all the following, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and filthy language from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old self with its old practices, and have put on the new self. You are being renewed in knowledge according to the image of your creator. In Christ, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcision and uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all in all. Let's pray as you're seated. Father God, we thank you for your word this morning. And we thank you, Father, that you've given us your word and that it's perfect and that it's true and that it's authoritative. And so, Lord God, we ask this morning that as we go into a time of preaching from your word, that you would just bind us as your church to the truth of your word. Father, that you would show us in your word how, how Christ is revealed to us, that the Holy Spirit would move on us and make this clear, and that we would be committed to the authority and the truth of your word. And Father, I also pray that by grace, as the Spirit moves upon us, that you would remind us in this time that my words come from the lips of a sinful man. So Father, if I say anything 
outside of the accordance of the truth of your scripture, that I pray as the spirit moves among us and drives us to read and understand your word. If I say anything that is out of step with the counsel of scripture, that it would be identified by the sisters and brothers in this body, that they would bring it up first before me and that I would repent first before you and then before this congregation so that our church, First Baptist New Orleans, can move forward in purity of doctrine. Not so we can be puffed up in our doctrinal correctness, but instead, Father, that as we understand who you've revealed yourself to be in your word, that we would grow more and more in love with you and more and more passionate about the mission which you have given us, that we would be better at making disciples in New Orleans and the nations. We pray all of these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. You can be seated. As we look at this passage We're going to look especially at verses five through 11, but I wanna again call your mind to what it is that we're being admonished to do here. If if you wanna know how do you live the resurrected life, that's what verses one through four are setting us up for, is showing us this is what the resurrected life looks like. Notice verse one, if you have been raised with Christ, if that is true. So sisters and brothers, if we have been raised with Christ, if we have by grace received the gospel, if we have shared in his death, then by grace we share in his resurrection. If this is true of us, this then is what our life ought to look like. We should be seeking the things that are above. Why? Because that's where Christ is. See that? Here in verse one, if we've been raised with Christ, our thoughts and our minds ought to be set on Christ, not the things of the world. By the way, where is Christ? At the right hand of God, because he has all power. So so our minds ought to be set on Christ, who's at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Why? Because we have, verse three, died to earthly things. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is in your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So simple truth there. If it is true, if it is true, that we have been crucified with Christ, and if it is true that our hope, our only hope, our every hope, our glorious hope, is that we will be raised up in Christ because of his sacrifice for us and his adoption of us as his sons and daughters who will be raised up and share in the victory of his resurrection. If that is true, then the rest of this passage is gonna show us how we ought to live this resurrected life. Now, I wanna be clear, this this passage actually goes on. This, This ties in with everything through chapter four, verse six in Colossians. But it especially goes through not just ending in verse 11, but going through verse 17. Because what we're going to see as we go through here is we're going to see two types of lists. We're going to focus on the ones in 5 through 11. In in 5 through 11, we have what's called vice lists. In other words, we're going to see two lists of bad things that we ought not to do. If we were to read forward and we were to look at verses 12 through 16, we would see what's called a virtue list. In other words, these are things that we ought to do. These are common in the New Testament. You you can see many of them. Jesus is going to go through one in Mark chapter 7, verses 21 21 and 22. We're going to see one in Romans 1, in 1 Corinthians 5, Galatians 5, Ephesians 4, 1 Timothy chapter 1, Titus chapter 1. These are simply just lists saying, "These these are things that you ought to avoid. These are lists of things that you ought 
to do. These are used commonly in the ancient world as a part of instruction and education, especially with children. And, and it's something that's relatively easy for us to understand today because many of us can think back, especially maybe to grade school, where one of the things that's going to be a feature of classrooms is there's these list of rules right on the wall. Do these things, don't do these things. We have that in the Bible. And here's one of the things that they remind us. I want us to, to remember this as we go through this text. One of the things that just the fact that these lists exist remind us of is that God actually does care about the way his people behave. God does indeed care about the things that we do, the way in which we conduct ourselves. And so because God lovingly cares for us, he tells us avoid these things and do these things. And in this passage, these lists are here to show us this is how we can live resurrected lives. If we are indeed raised with Christ, we ought to set our minds on the things that are above and therefore put to death these vices. So I want us to focus on the two lists that we see here. Here's, here's point number one as we're going through this sermon. If we want to live a resurrected life, if we want to live a resurrected life, kill sexual immorality. If we want to live a resurrected life, kill sexual immorality. Look at verses, chapter 3, verses 5 through 7. Therefore, put to death what belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. Whenever I was a kid, one of the things that I remember, I've got a pretty strong memory of, is I was out in the yard one day and all of a sudden this, this dog comes up in the yard. And this dog comes up in the yard and it's just got eyes kind of bulging out of its head. It's slobbering. And, and I remember just being horrified of the dog. Two things I remember about that. One is my dad just saying that, that he comes out in the yard. I think my dad's gonna have to like fight the dog. My dad just says, get out of here, dog. And the dog runs away. But my dad kept an eye on that dog. And one of the things my dad told my brother and I is he said, Kids, listen, I'm gonna call around the neighborhood. I'm gonna to try to figure out whose dog that is. I'm gonna to try to figure out what's going on. But if that dog comes back up and that dog gets close to you like that again, and if it snarls like that at you again, we're gonna to have to kill that dog. We're gonna to have to put it down. Now, I just wanna be clear to those of you that have grown up like in the city limits of New Orleans, there is no animal control in Meriwether County. You are animal control, okay? So just wanna be clear on that. There were no other options. And we didn't have to kill the dog. But my dad, I remember him saying, if it comes back, it poses such a threat because it's acting like it has rabies. It poses such a threat that we're going straight to having to put it down. Why is it that we are admonished in Colossians chapter three, verse five, that we are to kill sexual immorality, put to death what belongs to your earthly nature because it poses such a threat to us that it must be eliminated. And this is the very reason that Jesus has eliminated such sins on the cross. Let's, let's understand some things about sexual sin in Paul's context. So, so one of the things that I want us to see in this passage is I want us to just understand what's going on in the city of Colossae where this letter is written. Sexual sinfulness, sexual licentious is the norm. So, so Colossae looks a lot more like Bourbon Street in New Orleans than it does Main Street in Manchester, Georgia, where I grew up. And here's the reason that I wanna bring this up, okay? 
Because I think one of the things that we sometimes struggle with as Christians in a city like New Orleans is we struggle with the fact of, can we live as Christians in a city where the worldview is so radically opposed to the worldview that we see revealed in scripture? And a book like Colossians makes that answer very clear to us. Yes, it can. Christianity grew and flourished and was established in such settings. So living lives of what we call sexual purity in Colossae was not normal. Paul's speaking to a culture where sexual sin is the norm. And this needs to help us understand the way we approach the Bible's commands about sexual sin. The Bible is in fact not written in a sexually repressed context. It's written in a sexually licentious context. And this is why this matters. It reminds us of something. Sexual ethics, like all other forms of ethics among Christians, are always countercultural. They're always countercultural. And sisters and brothers, I think we need to hear this because I think many of us think that the problem that we are facing in this current context, this current city, this current age, is how are we going to persevere? Can we persevere? Are the ethics laid out to us in the Bible compatible with this kind of world? And I want us to see that the answer to the first two questions, can we persevere in this city, in this culture? Yes, Are the ethics of the Bible compatible with this kind of world? No, and they've never been compatible with any sort of fallen world. Not Colossae and not 1950s America and not 2023 in New Orleans or any other city or any other place on this earth. So this calling comes to a culture that like us is struggling with what does it mean to live counterculturally? Look at the sins that Paul through the Holy Spirit is telling the believers at Colossae to put to death. Listen to this first, sexual immorality. This simply put, this is the the broadest kind of category of sexual sin. It's just all sexual activity outside of what God has said is good. We could go to other passages and see what God has said is good for sexual activity. We could go to 1 Corinthians 7. We could go to Genesis chapter 2. We could see that there is this, this prescription that God has that sexual activity is good. We are created as sexual beings and that for most people that's going to be worked out within marriage. We also see in 1 Corinthians and seven, that God has a special plan for singleness, if that's the calling that God places on someone's life. What we see here is this sexual immorality, anything outside of that, that God has said is good, falls into this category. Second word that's used here is the word impurity. So he says sexual immorality, impurity. Impurity here has to do with the immoral desires of our heart. If you, if you read the word in Greek, it actually has the word that, that sounds like heart in it. Romans 124 is going to reference this. Whenever it's talking about what sexual sin is an example of, Romans 124 says, therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. So what we're being told here is put to death sexual immorality, put to death impurity, the immoral desires of our heart. Here, this is pushing explicitly towards sexual behavior, but it has a broader dimension as well. Then we have this this next word that's being used here, lust. Your translation might say passion. This is exactly what you think it is. This is the overwhelming urge to participate in immoral behavior. And again, in this list, it's focused explicitly towards sexual activity. So so notice that what Paul's doing, it's kind of like he's, he's drawing the funnel in and he's saying, avoid sexual immorality at the broadest sense. 
Avoid the immoral sexual desires of your heart. Avoid lust, this overwhelming desire to act in this way. The next thing that we're going to see is the the phrase evil desires. And this is the state in which we hand our desires over to evil. In, In this case, sexually impure desires. And then the last thing that we're going to see, depending on your translation, is going to be translated either covetousness or greed. So as we go down this list, put to death what belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. That word that's translated here as greed in the CSB means unchecked hunger for physical pleasure unchecked hunger for physical pleasure. And greed, Paul tells us, is idolatrous. Greed of this sort puts our own pleasure at the center of our attention and worship rather than what God desires for us. I wanna return to that in just a second because I think understanding that, that all of this is actually somehow focused on idolatry is key to fighting and killing this and living the resurrected life. But notice something about this, this list warns us against sexual sin in the reverse order of how we tend to experience it. Because this is how we tend to experience it. We tend to start with covetousness and this unchecked hunger for a new and more fulfilling experience. That's where it starts. And then we allow our lust and passion to fuel our desires. And we begin to be consumed with passion that starts on the inside now to express itself on the outside. We place ourselves in a state of impurity and all of that leads to committing sexual immorality. And here is what we are being told in this passage that if we are to live resurrected lives, then this needs to be put to death among us. Sisters and brothers, let me make a point here. If we are to kill sexual sin, we're gonna have to take the fight to the root. Let me begin here by making a point. We tend to focus on the fruit of sin and especially the fruit of sexual sin rather than the root of sin and especially sexual sin. Here's what I mean by this. One of the things that's, that's already happening, anytime a sermon like this is preached, anytime we go through a passage like this, one of the things that I know is happening with many people is it's like, okay, is he gonna bring up like, like LGBTQ issues? Is he going to bring up homosexuality? Is he gonna bring up this, these things that are especially pressing on the culture? And I'm just gonna tell you, there's other passages that we could walk through, Romans 1, and we could, we could walk through the book of 1 Corinthians, and we can see that, yes, clearly, The Bible makes it very clear that those types of behaviors, those types of of giving yourself over to that identity, yes, that's outside of what God desires for us. And we need to understand it as sin. But here's the issue. That's the fruit of the sin. And we cannot and must not focus explicitly on that fruit because sisters and brothers, let me tell you, my guess is in this room, if we're honest, we are probably dealing with more fruit of heterosexual sin than we are of homosexual sin. The fruit might be different, but the root is the same and we're gonna have to take the fight to the root because here's what's gonna happen if we just try to address the fruit. It's gonna come back over and over and over and over. 
Kayla and I lived in Rome, Georgia, in between the time we left the seminary students and then came back on faculty. We bought this house there. And in front of the house, there was this, this holly plant. And it was some kind of like wild holly and it just didn't look good. And we wanted to get rid of it. And so not long after we moved in and start working on the flower bed in front of the house, I chop it down, we plant some other stuff. About a month later, there's holly sprigs everywhere. I cut them down. This goes on for uh, about eight months. And finally I go out there and I start digging and there's a holly root and I dig and I dig and I dig and I dig. And after I have pulled two wheelbarrows full of dirt out of this little flower bed, I finally pull the thing up by the root. And only then is there anything effective about this fight. Sisters and brothers, we have to take the fight to the root. If you're fighting sexual sin, if you're gonna fight temptation, you're not going to win the fight by looking inside yourself and saying, I'm gonna stop whatever the behavior is that's been the fruit of this sin. I'm gonna go home and I'm gonna think I'm gonna get better and all of a sudden my pornography problem is gonna go away, not gonna work. You're not going to be able to sit down and say, okay, I rationally, logically understand what is going on. And all of a sudden, my desires are explicitly going to be for the person to whom I am married or may someday marry. I'm just gonna think myself out of it. Your willpower will not kill sin. Behavioral, behavioral modification, counseling as helpful it might be, will not kill sin because we're talking about living the resurrected life. Here's where the root of sin is killed. The root of sin is killed whenever Christ is nailed to the cross. That is the only place where there is any kind of death of sin. And the only victory over sexual sin or any other type of sin is not going to be found in your strategies. It's not gonna be found in your willpower. It's not going to be found in your conviction. The only victory over sexual or any other type of sin is going to be found when you say, Jesus has killed sin and he has risen and he is at the right hand of the Father and he has all the power in ways I might not fully understand and will not in this life. I fully understand. He has put it to death. So when I set my mind on him, that is the only way that this sin is going to be killed. It's the only way. Practically, what does that look like? Practically, what that look like, looks like is that as we live lives, and sisters and brothers, I just want to tell you, I, I'm talking about the broader culture. I'm talking about our church culture, and I'm also talking about me. My guess is, is that for many of us, as we really think about what are, the, what are the things, what are the thoughts, what are the patterns that we just feel like we're always fighting, always fighting, when will it die that this keeps coming up? And I just wanna tell us that practically one of the things this means is that we are constantly reminded by the burden of sexual sin, by the burden of lust, by the burden of our passions, that we are not just, just looking inside ourselves looking for hope, but instead throwing ourselves before Christ and saying, Christ, kill it. Kill it, I know you've dealt with it on the cross. Kill it, do something miraculous in my life. And then confiding in other sisters and brothers who are undergoing the same fight with an honesty and vulnerability that we're about to address. What's at stake with this? Look at verse six. What's at stake with this verse six says, because of these God's wrath is coming upon the disobedient. So we have to be careful here because our culture, like Paul's culture, is dismissive of sexual sin. Scripture, however, tells us that God's wrath is coming because of these, not only these, but also because of these actions. 
So what are we to do? Seek identity in the resurrection of Christ. If you have been raised, chapter three, verse one, then you're going to seek the death of sin through the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. Without being transformed by Christ's resurrection, there is no hope for us to kill sexual sin. Sexual sin is put to death like every other sin on the cross of King Jesus. And victory over sexual sin is like victory over every other sin. It is won in the resurrection of King Jesus. So ultimately, why do we care about all this? Why is this list in scripture? Simply put, because God is telling us one of the fruits of the resurrected life is going to be sexual purity as Christ miraculously brings about victory over sin. Just briefly before we leave this subject and go on to the next list, I just wanna make clear to us as a church, this does not mean that people are going to come up to us and they're going to look at our church and they're going to be like, oh, what wonderful sexually pure people. They're, they're like a bunch of just, you know, just really good goody goody folks. That's not the point. The point is that as people get to know us and they see people who are radically different in the way they behave and maybe initially despised in the way they behave, that through our profession and through our witness, that the enduring product of the miraculous work of sexual purity that happens as we live resurrected lives is that people look at us and hear our profession and say they do it for the glory of God, saying that God has called them to this because it's better and they believe it. And the joy that is within them and the harmony and the pieces within them testifies that it is better. And it turns out that what God wants for them is better than the passions that they have raised up within themselves and that I've raised up within myself. That's the point. Let's move forward. Verses eight through 10, second thing. First thing, kill sexual sin. That's how we live the resurrected life. Verses eight through 10, put away divisive speech. Let me tell you a story about a perfectly acceptable evangelical church. Perfectly acceptable in the culture. And I mean within the culture of like evangelicalism. I mean like, like good Southern Baptist and conservative Presbyterians and conservative Methodists and non-denominational churches, which by the way are usually just Baptist chickens. Like, like those folks just love these kind of churches. They preach sermons like the one I've just been preaching. And they condemn sexual sin. And they speak about it. And maybe people in the congregation are like, man, that's, that's bold. And I'm glad our church is addressing that. I'm glad they're addressing the word. And that church hears those types of sermons, but then in the church, gossip prevails and they cut one another down and they undermine leaders and they undermine the servants of the church. And, and they're constantly trying to establish some type of pecking order within the church, lifting up through their speech, who is good and who is bad. And they just craft through their language and through their actions an entirely false sense of who they are and how they fit into the community. Sisters and brothers, listen, within evangelicalism, that's often perfectly acceptable. And here's what this passage is telling us. It's telling us put to death sexual sin, but then we're also admonished. Look at verse eight, put away divisive speech. Here's what Paul says, second list. Put away now all the following anger, wrath, malice, slander, and filthy language from your mouth. Just look at these words, anger here. This is the same word, by the way, in verse six, same exact word in Greek that's translated as wrath. That's super important. This is what that means. God feels a righteous wrath in judgment against sinners. And when that happens with God, it's holy. When God looks at sin and he condemns sin and he's wrathful against sin, it's holy. 
But when you and I try to do it to each other, it's sinful. Because what is just and appropriate and right for God to feel against sinners is not appropriate for one sinner to feel against another sinner. So what are we seeing here with this anger? It's pointing us towards the fact that instead of having compassion on one another as fellow sinners, we're instead living in constant judgment. We hate those other people. We're angry at those other people. We don't like those other people because they're somehow not as good as I am. And what is righteous for God becomes wickedness for us. The second word we see here, wrath, this burning rage that we speak out of our passions then instead of thinking through, how do I speak in a way that is loving? How do I speak in a way that is setting my mind on the things that are above? How do I speak in a way that honors the resurrected Lord on the right hand of God, that the words bubble up within the old unresurrected Adam and flow from my mouth, never checked. Next word we see here is malice. It's to have evil feelings towards others. This one's hard, especially if you grew up in the South. Dealing with malice can be hard because sisters and brothers, if you grew up in the South, you might know that multiple things can be meant. If you look at someone and you say, well, bless your heart. That can be a difficult phrase to decode. And one of the reasons malice can be difficult to deal with is as polite Southern folks, we have trained ourselves to foster up these feelings and these sentiments of, of, of just absolute despising others and yet always express ourselves in this kind, honey, sweet sort of way. They might not know the intentions of our heart, but God does. Malice is a part of this. Malice here is a part of this divisive speech. Next thing that we're gonna be told about is slander. This is literally blasphemy. If you have the King James Version, it translates it as blasphemy. That's what the word is in the Greek. This is what this means. It's speaking against someone in a way that's meant to harm their reputation. Speaking against someone in a way that's meant to harm their reputation. So, so what we're being warned of here is if you're living the resurrected life, you can't be the kind of person that goes around telling people things about, oh yeah, so-and-so, he's, he's a great person. Sure is a chain, he cheated on his wife that time. You know something, so-and-so, I'm so glad they serve our church. I wish they could show up on time. Those are the kind of things that it's so easy for us to drop into our speech. And what we see here is, is that it's absolutely unacceptable if we're living the resurrected life for there to be that type of slanderous speech happening against other image bearers. And then finally, the last thing we see here is filthy language, which might be translated as obscene talk. Here's one of the things that I think can be difficult about this one. Especially if you grew up in church, and again, especially if you grew up in South, and especially if you grew up with a mama like mine who literally would wash your mouth out with soap, okay? It was not just a metaphor in our home. You might be someone that says, well, I don't have a foul mouth. I don't cuss, I don't use particular words. Let me just tell you, I think that can be a part of obscene talk is using a particular vocabulary. But I, I will tell you this, I think folks like me who grew up in, in homes where curse words were not you, folks, I was, I was homeschooled. I have vivid memories of sitting around with my brothers and our homeschool friends trying to say, what do you think the B word is? And we were wrong, okay? We thought it was, but turns out I can say that in church now. So, 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 so even folks like me who have this history of where that was just cussing was not tolerated also can be incredibly obscene and what we say, if we are talking about things that promote sinfulness, if we're talking about things that demean others, 
if we're talking about things that intentionally dwell upon the lesser things of earth rather than speech that promotes setting our minds on the things that are above. So we have these five things that are listed here. So, so we come out of this. Does this mean that God cares, actually cares about how we talk? Yes, he cares about how we talk. The ethics of the resurrected life run deep and they root into the daily practices of our lives, including how we speak to others. So sisters and brothers, I want us to see this and I want us to see how now it's gonna just punch to the end of this that is incredibly convicting for us because look what's gonna happen. We get this list and then, then verse nine, we're now told this, do not lie to one another since you have put off the old self with its practices. Do not lie to one another. Figuring out what lying means can be pretty easy for us. We look at Exodus chapter 20, verse 16. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. If you are not telling things the way that they are, if, if you're just being dishonest, this is lying and it is abhorrent to God, especially when we do it to one another. He's talking to the Christians in the church of Colossae, and he says, don't lie to one another. Go back to where we started this. Go back to this first list where we were talking about sexual sin. And, and I think that, that, that we at First Baptist, and I think our church culture, I think we understand, we take this seriously. And, and if we were the kind of church where there was sexual sin just, just rampantly happening, if there was affairs, and if there was adultery, if there was unfaithfulness, it was just rampant in our body, we'd address it. But equally as important in this scripture, and equally as important this is revealing before God, are we honest with one another? Have we in fact sinned when someone comes up to us in the foyer of our church, and they say, how are you? And the reality is we are awful and broken and depressed and sad and in turmoil. And we look at them and we smile and we say, I'm fine. Don't lie to one another. There's many applications for this, but I think especially we see this, that if we're going to see the resurrected life thrive as a church, if we're going to be marked that when, when folks, especially non-believers come into First Baptist, they say they're living life in a different way. What, what we hope by grace, they'll come to know is the resurrected life that they would see that we share in Jesus's resurrection. Sisters and brothers, just as sexual purity is a marker of that, one thing that should be a marker of that is to say, this is a place where people are strangely honest with one another. They are strangely honest with one another about what is happening. And that as they get to the core of that, they are not going to find some sort of flimsy cultural jargon about how we just want to be our true selves, but they see something much, much, much better. They say, Jesus has told them to be honest with one another. And so instead of doing what everyone's tendency is, is to lie to each other, they're obedient to what Jesus says. And it turns out it's better than what they were gonna do on their own, acting out of their own sinful hearts. And so once again, just as sexual purity is a herald of the goodness of Christ, 
pure speech and honesty within the body is a herald of Christ. Goodness and what the, the, the expression of to other people and the witness to other people is that these people are living differently. That the resurrected life is in fact superior in every way to this life that can lead us only to death. As Paul comes out of this, he is going to tell us that lying to one another is unacceptable because we put off the old self. Again, if you have the King James there, I think something helpful in the translation is it doesn't just say old self, it says the old man. The old man. This moves us to Romans chapter 5. Paul's talking about the same sort of thing here that he's talking about Romans chapter 5 where he says, listen, in Adam all die. The old man can only offer you death. And if you're lying to one another, you're walking in the way of death, not in the way of the resurrection. So where does all of this lead us? Look at verses 10 and 11. Don't lie to one another, verse 9 says, since you have put off the old self with its practices. But here's what we've done. We've put on the new self. You're being renewed in knowledge according to the image of your creator. In Christ, there is not Greek and Jews, circumcision and uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all in all. This is where it is pointing us. Be identified with Christ. If we are resurrected in Christ, if we're resurrected in Christ, if these, these, these things that are in accordance to the old man are put to death. And by the way, impure speech breeds categorization. Slander breeds elevating some and diminishing others. Lying breeds good, holy people and then putting aside to the other folks saying, they're the bad folks over there. Sexual sin, especially in our culture, breeds categories and various identities saying, I'm gonna be identified as this and this and this. That's what the old self does. You know what the resurrected life does? It breaks down the categories. And we live in freedom, not having to say, I identify as this or this or this, but instead, I, along with my brothers and sisters, put aside the lesser categories of this world and we are identified in Christ. If we are resurrected in Christ, then the cultural and genetic boundaries that were thought to give us value don't matter. Here, look at what he's saying here. So, so here, there is not Greek and Jew circumcision, uncircumcision. Here, where? In the resurrected life we live in Christ. There's no distinction in ethnicity. There's not Greek and Jew. There's no distinction in purity. There's no longer circumcision and uncircumcision. There's no distinction in citizenship, barbarian or Scythian. There's no distinction in social status, slave or free. And by the way, sisters and brothers, it's not because we've all just decided to become enlightened and hold hands and sing kumbaya together. It's because there's something better that has replaced these things. There's no distinction in ethnicity because we all become a part of Christ. There's no distinction in ritual purity because we are made pure in Christ. There's no distinction in citizenship because we are citizens of heaven. There's no distinctions of social status because we have been taken out of our sinful, lowly state and we've been elevated to be made sons and daughters of the most high God, just Christ. There's a profound application here to unity in the body. Unity in different cultures, not because we have to create some type of space where everything gets flattened out 
And so we have to say that we're not going to be the kind of space that can celebrate the fact that God has created us in ways that are richly different and that, that reflect in various facets the glory of how God has made us as his image bearers. Not because we have to artificially flatten it out. But this kind of application is going to lead us to unity between people of different cultures because we can see that no matter what the cultural expression is, when we're living the resurrected life and our minds have been turned on the things of God, then we can join with sisters and brothers from across cultures and across language groups. And we can say that all of us are standing in equal footing, having put aside the things of the old dead life and taken up the new life in Christ. Unity between those from different religious backgrounds. Notice I say from different religious backgrounds. Because we come in and where the church in the New Testament and Colossae, they were saying, could Jews and Gentiles ever worship together? Yes, because they lived the same resurrected life. Can Baptists, people who were born in a Baptist home and people who were born in a Roman Catholic home ever worship together? Yes. Can people who were born in Muslim countries in the darkness of Islam ever truly worship with someone who was born in an atheist secular home in the United States? Yes. Not because we're doing something so creative on our stages and in our pulpits, but because of the miracle that they're living the same resurrected life. Can people who are born in countries like China ever actually have fellowship with those that are born in the United States with their radical different cultures and philosophies? Yes, because they're living the same resurrected life. Can someone who was born and lived and lives now in the deepest depth of poverty that you can imagine actually be equal to the leaders and the politicians and the businessmen? Yes, Yes, they can, because they have found a far deeper treasure in Christ so that the one in poverty can rejoice, at least in the fact of being reminded that there is no earthly treasure to be held onto next to Christ, whose mind they have set themselves on, who is at the right hand of God. And the one who is the wealthiest among us in this world has considered their treasure like their righteousness is filthy rags and said, Christ alone is sufficient. That's the resurrected life. Sisters and brothers, this morning, I have a simple invitation. If you are a believer, this is the resurrected life. By grace, we have been given it. Let us live in it and worship in joy. And if you're here this morning and you've heard about this resurrected life and you've said, I don't know anything about that, we'd invite you to come forward and hear about it. Pastor Gary will be at the front this morning. I'll be on the front row if you have any questions or you'd like for us to pray with you. Let's pray together now. Father God, we thank you, Lord. You are good to us. We thank you, Father, for your grace. And we confess, Father, this morning that this resurrected life that you have revealed to us from your word is not something that we have established by our hands or by our righteousness. We are a sinful people in and of ourselves. And Father, those who are this morning blessed to be able to call ourselves your sons and your daughters, confess now that we do so solely by your grace. With this in mind, Father, let us live setting our minds on the things that are above, realizing that we're never going to fight sin. We're never going to kill sexual immorality. We're never going to establish pure speech in and of ourselves. So, Father, let us trust you to miraculously work these things among us. And, Father, let us this morning and always rejoice in the unity of the resurrected life. Pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.